At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, let's continue. Uh, the man needs no introduction, but I am still going to do an introduction because uh, this is uh, part of the astronosis. When uh, I was, we were working on this conference, uh, I had a certain list of people that I knew just fit the idea of astronosis, the concept, and One of them was Chris, and I was telling Chris, I was like, oh, man, Chris, be great if you could do it. Damn it, why, does, why is Gordon in Australia, blah, blah, blah. And Chris was like, hold on a second. So then Chris calls me 15 minutes later, and he's like, guess who's going to be in Mexico around the spring uh, equinox? So it was great that how everything has worked out through some providence. And uh, Again, I'll keep with the theme it was meant to be, and I hope everybody's having experience, but I will not take any more oxygen out of the room. Without further ado, Gordon White. Hey, there we go. So after that little story that Miguel gave about how I've ended up here, uh, he said, come to the conference if you're going to be there. I don't care what you talk about. First of all, rude. Uh, second of all, I'm like, okay, it's a Gnosticism conference. What do I want to talk about? I want to talk about indigenous calendars and the experience of time in a living universe. And I'm like, I've just, I'm not convinced that as a topic is Gnostic, but the presentation is. The presentation is Gnostic because I'm about to argue our experience of time comes from a story we've inherited that is not only wrong, but it is a prison, right? So the presentation, the content of the presentation isn't super Gnostic, uh, but I actually think by the end of it, we'll suggest that the presentation itself is. So this is what we are, this is the fire hose we drink from. So we're going to talk about the differences in time. So, and it's, and we have to complexify it more than the difference between a circle and a line, although we'll get there. And then I'm going to give you examples from uh, other systems in the world that might uh, teach us something about Uh, how we can experience time, and then again, look back at what it is we do. And the reason for that will come from uh, some of the words of this guy. This is Vine Deloria Jr., and he was one of the, I think, more brilliant uh, First Nations philosophers in the 21st century. He was Standing Rock Sioux, and uh, he was a theologian and all this other stuff. And if you've read Animistic, and if you haven't, you should, but if you've read Animistic, there's uh, some of his material uh, in there. But he kind of observed that uh, the Western world, there's a few lines of text or, or walls of text like this coming up. Uh, the Greeks, and it's not that this is wrong, it's just that it's a take, and we forgot that it's a take. 
The Greeks concentrated their efforts to explain the physical universe on determining the ultimate constituent from which all phenomena are derived. So there's an already an abstraction process going on in there outside of experience, right? And Gnosticism, for instance, is downstream from that as well. All these discussions uh, we're having that are metaphysical are at a remove of, of one thing, a kind of like of, of bundling up of data. And from an indigenous perspective, that looks weird. That's a secondary effect of what is a real effect or a primary effect, which is uh, experience or experiential. And we kind of don't notice that it's a take and, and sort of mistake that it's, it's reality. And it's one of the errors or challenges we get when we try to learn from other systems. So it's kind of inspired by uh, Vine Deloria's uh, observation and pretty much like all my presentations, uh, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at what went wrong and then we're gonna look around the world at uh, other people who maybe didn't get it so wrong. And then we're going to return to us in a broadly Western context and look at how we might do things better. And on the plane over, which is when I put this together in case there are any typos, that's my excuse. Uh, even animism can be chaos magic if you're doing it right and or wrong, which is to say the quest here is, is, is still an optimization one. It's actually, there's some stuff we're not doing right. And there are other people in the world who are maybe doing it better. And what we did in the 20th century from a magical perspective is, is try and be like them, right? So it's like, oh, um, the Navajo or the Hopi have a better system of uh, understanding time. So I'm going to like join some kind of Hopi new age thing and that is still the wrong kind of thinking it's it's more about learning how they do things and situating that kind of learning in a way that is more complete or more coherent for uh, our own systems right and so we begin and i had gary luckman on the show recently uh, for his book dreaming ahead of time and we were talking at the end the TikTok world is a phrase he uses where i talk about things like machine time and it didn't occur to him that in in 2022 the TikTok world just meaning a clock you can actually drop the C out of talk and, uh, and make it far more horrifying uh, and, and actually kind of keep that original idea of the world that we live in. The TikTok world is this um, hyper real machine logic system. And we, we're, I think people in the magical world are doing an okay job of, of moving outside of that and representing, but we leave time as one of the things, uh, we still keep this one damn thing after another version of time, which comes from the TikTok world, which comes from the machine world. And it's kind of like, you know, the final frontier, if we're uh, quoting Star Trek, to kind of look at it. So linear time, what we really call linear time, and this is how it does get back to being a bit Gnostic. Uh, linear time is you know who, right? And uh, Mich uh, Miguel and I have spoken about this a few times, but I'm really taken by the idea of uh, train timetables and trains. Now, the precision use of time zones, so like Britain is in the one time zone, well, um, England and Scotland are in the one time zone, uh, and you can kind of let's just say Britain is in the one time zone. Uh, and, but within that, in theory, under like the time zone model, Bristol is about like three minutes, a bit more, five minutes difference from London. And they, they actually had to kind of get as precise as that in the Victorian era, so that the, the mail train that showed up at 1.17 p.m. showed up exactly on time. And this idea of sort of gridding the world with machine time happened with trains. And when you encounter uh, lifeways that don't have that machine clock. And this is a genuine, like, tree falling in a woods question. A passenger train that doesn't have any passengers isn't a passenger train. So if you say the passenger train leaves at 1.15 and there's no one on it, how is it a passenger train? 
And that's the kind of uh, logic that you get outside of the Western framework in the same way that you only go, like, what time do we go fishing when the fish are there, right? It's not actually, uh, it, it is a relational determinant of time rather than a machine one. And so linear time is, uh, is the demiurge, put it that way. And, and, and it's his, I think, most effective prism. I want to talk about cosmological estrangement, the, basically the effects of machine time and how we got to it. And uh, this is in the book, this is an animistic. It's also obviously in Richard Tarnas's book where he kind of put this together and came up with this wonderful term, cosmological estrangement. And so what happened to kind of like Western thinking that it got us into the situation we're in now was a number of kind of king hits on how we experience reality. And in uh, animistic and previous things, I've spoken at length about Descartes' ontological estrangement, right? So he expressed in philosophical terms the experiential consequence of a new cosmological context. I'll come back to that. Starting from a position of fundamental doubt vis-a-vis -vis the world. So Descartes basically estranged us from meaning, like ontologically, like I can't be sure of anything except that I think, therefore I am, is where he went. Kant did a similar one or a similar kind of king hit on truth-seeking. So from uh, Kant, we got an epistemological estrangement, which is that idea of um, learning how to learn things or, or meaning make out of them. But these guys, uh, Descartes and Kant, are downstream, of course, from Copernicus. And what Copernicus did was relativized our relationship with the universe and decentered our own experience of it. None of us have ever actually lived in a heliocentric universe. And so the story of uh, Copernicus is one um, that is an essential step in getting to uh, this meaningless universe, right? So we, at the end of this process, this threefold process of estrangement, we have this small pointless existence at the edge of a universe, which might be devoid of meaning because we can't really tell if it's in there or if it's in our heads, whatever the hell that means. So it's a mess. It's, it's this triple king hit. And that's how you get train timetables and forced vaccinations, right? Because you've, you've used this process of decentering and alienizing experience and, and experiential living and extracted it, this is what Vindaloria is saying, into a, a data world, right? So you've mechanically extracted data, which is unattached from anything, out of human experiences. And you treat them as real, so that you look at body mass indexes or indices rather, uh, rather than the, the specific human, because this is real and this isn't. That is profoundly Gnostic, that we actually extract out of lived organic human experience and think that the stuff that we extract that's just unattached data is reality that we are in error from. That's profoundly Gnostic. And when it comes to time, it's uh, a bit of a mess, hence the presentation. And it's also how we get to, this is one of my favorite mechanisms, right? This meaningless universe is what he called the limit case for credulity. So if, quite literally, if you can believe scientific materialism, you can believe fucking anything because it is the stupidest idea by definition we've ever come up with that we are asked to believe that the entire universe sprang from nothing at a single point for no reason, right? And that's what we got from that threefold cosmological estrangement. He said, if you can believe that, you can believe literally anything, and that's the world we've ended up in, right? Clickety-click. Le monde primitif. So again, we go back to how did other people do it? And I use le monde primitif, so the word primitive in the way uh, when Reed Wildermuth was on the show recently, he spoke about primitive in its French context being original rather than, say, savage or backward. It's, it just means first, right? So le monde primitif is that, that first world, that ever-present origin. 
Uh, and this is an extended quotation from Vine Deloria, but it shows that difference between our estrangement and what you find in indigenous systems, right? So primitive descriptions of events contain all elements of knowledge that Western scientists have traditionally extracted and organized into distinct academic disciplines. So we, it's, the obvious example would be something like UFOs, which we have the psychologists looking at it and the nuclear physicists looking at it and, and all the rest of it. But another one would just be birth. Another one would be something more prosaic, more quotidian. But again, we have different medical disciplines and we have psychology and we have this stuff and we smear out the experience into these categories and, and contextualize it in a linear fashion. Whereas in the primitive system, the immediacy of a situation uh, without including prior causation and future projections as part of the original experience. So primitive people can actually, and again, I mean that in the original sense, can more effectively carry uh, complete information through time. Primitive people preserve chunks of experience, not that interpretive pattern of activity. So what the fun thing, and this was written in uh, the 80s sometime when people were still vibing on Marshall McLuhan, um, Marshall McLuhan observed that the so-called primitive method of moving information through time and realizing that when an event happens, your inner and outer experience are co-valued, right? So what happens inside of you in a Western system, we ignore uh, and, and then extract out data and get on the ground with the Geiger counters and, and whatever, and that's the story of UFOs. But in, a, in a primitive ontologies, what happened to you, what you experienced when you saw that light or encountered that being is all the one event moving through time. And it's a cleaner, more precise way of moving information through time, which is what he's saying. And even McLuhan figured out, it's like, well, hang on, uh, this one damn thing after another sequence that we have mistaken for reality has lost its prime place uh, in physics and biology. So even within the mainstream systems, that sequentiality that we got from the 18th century, that TikTok world doesn't even match biology and physics, but we still are caught in that, in that sort of, yeah, time prison, if you will. Which brings me to parapsychology. And again, we look at like what we can do that is good and bad. And literally this is, this, this looks like science to me. This uh, clearly faked, like all the awesome 19th century uh, <laughs> psychic pictures. But this process of parapsychology is more scientific, I think, than pretty much anything you're going to get from string theory or wherever. When Dean Radin was on the show, he said psychology in general and parapsychology has physics envy, right? But I think physics should have parapsychology envy because parapsychologists do real experiments that end up with real results, right? And so... The, what we find in parapsychology, I think, is the best of what a sequential framework can provide to us. So I'm going to pull out some of the kind of like good data from parapsychology and say, let's not pull out data from it and, and we'll go from there. And it's, it's really important that we do this. And I go into it in, in some depth in animistic because one of the things when we pick up parapsychological data about uh, after-death experiences or UFO contact or whatever is we go, this proves... Uh, like a native cosmology, or it turns out that, you know, maybe the Bible is right about angels or what have you. And the trouble with that logic is that you still only let things be real if they conform to this like machine universe's framework of what is and isn't allowed to be real. So the example I used in Animistic is we might say um, the Cairo believe mountains are Apus, and an Apu is like the uh, Quechua word for great spirit, right? But that's wrong, like, because what you, what you do when you say the Cairo believe mountains are Apus 
is centering the notion of mountains and basically having all non-Western systems be less accurate scientific descriptions of a mountain. So what the, the challenge with English is that that's, even if you don't mean it that way, that's where you're, you'll get your mind to do that by saying the Caro believe mountains are afterwards. But if you shift it and go back to the experiential and say what we experience as mountains, the Caro experience is apus, you've put us back into that kind of relationality where we can learn from each other, right? And there are just tricks like that. And if we, when we move through parapsychological data, that's one of them. You can look at the amazing data that you can kind of see in remote viewing and go, this proves clairvoyance. It kind of doesn't. And, I, and I'll get to why. It's because we have to learn how to learn because of that cosmological estrangement. Uh, hang on, clickety-click. Yoo-hoo. All right. Yeah, I don't know. I can see the mouse, but it's, uh, she does not want, there we go. Hang on, is that the next one? All right, so coming back to remote viewing and why it's not interesting to me, because it, like it is, but I mean, remote viewing, we say proves psychic abilities. Uh, sure, but again, that's that abstraction process. What are psychic abilities? There are these things that are outside of human experience. So what are they? Like there's clairvoyance, there's, there's two or three of them. And it's this abstract idea, but that's not actually what happened. What happened was some, uh, an individual person saw a thing in their mind that mapped reality. So the experience is what happened there. And for me, the key, and again, this is in the book, is what remote viewing shows is that human awareness is in relation to past and future. So the example I like from the Stargate program uh, stuff that's been released is uh, remote viewing a public pool and, and seeing that there were these water towers there, which weren't there. And then um, Russell goes to the library and finds out that in the 30s in Menlo Park, that was a water treatment facility so that these towers were actually on the site of what is a public pool then so that the, it was a hit but it was a hidden time. And it's this kind of idea that that means non-local awareness is, is that abstraction that we don't need to necessarily do yet. And the other one that I think is super important is the famous case of being shown some guy's cabin, his like holiday cabin uh, as a remote viewing target. And what he didn't realize is that the second biggest NSA listening base on the Eastern seaboard was just over the hill from it. So when they went to view the cabin, they're like, there are these underground base bits and you know, you know, big radar dishes. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's my cabin. But what that shows is that it, this process finds meaning. Like meaning is extant in the universe. It's not like psychic abilities, like you saw a cabin. This engagement process shows that meaning is there in the world because that is the significance that altered that level of connection. So it's actually, in many respects, creepier because, but uh, more profound, okay, what are we? I wonder if I move this down here, seeing as it's not clicking. I, I mean, hopefully it won't be as... <sighs> These large-scale parapsychological experiments like telephone telepathy and the rest of it, they're still doing that bundling up of data. So they're still saying that humans have psychic abilities. But that, that happens in an abstract universe where on the next slide I talk about the idea that precognitive dreams are kind of like pretty parrots in a forest where you go, oh, that's kind of cool. Like there's a dream over there that was predictive of the future. But you're in a forest. Like... The, the, the actual implication is what's going on with the forest, this idea that you are in relation to meaning and in relation to time in a way that we don't describe to each other, like TikTok time can't account for this, right? So it's not just the circle of places the line, it's that the fundamental bed, bedrock of reality is not formed by bundling up like the largest volume of data points, right? Um, but it's, it's actually situating and finding a way to scale 
experiential reality. All right, so this is what I mean. They're not birds. Like when you have a precognitive dream, like what does that mean? You go because yes, we have. We can learn from the the parapsychological data that people will dream the future, whatever that means. And if you just think it means that you go to sleep at night and something happens in your head that matches something that's going to happen in the future, you've just made it a pretty bird. But how? That says something about time that I don't think we have the right framework for encountering in the TikTok world, right? So we need to jump from like parapsychology into magic. And I think from that, like all is consciousness placeholder idea of the 20th century into something like closer to animism and it's like opportunity for relationality. So how I'm going to like describe a counter way of understanding time is with this term I invented, pachaography. So pacha as in Pachamama, uh, we often interpret as earth, but it's not, it's stuff, it's cosmos stuff, because it's space-time, except I don't use the word space just to, to carry on, because there is no such thing as space. There is no emptiness in a living cosmos. Even space is a place, right? In fact, it is the place, if you uh, remember the song. So um, Pacha is this Quechua term that means place-time is what I'm going to describe it as, like the stuff of the cosmos. Now, and if you are familiar with, and everyone in this room is, and on the call, uh, this sort of classic three-part division of the shamanic world, lower world, middle world, upper world. Uh, in, in a more Andean tradition, the underworld is also the past. So the ukupacha is the past. It is the place of our origins and the place of the ancestors. And the kaipacha, the middle world, the place of our being is the present and presencing. And the hanakpacha, which is the upper world, is the place of our becoming and the future. So there is a, there is a topology that is implied in place time that I'm going to use as the kind of map as we move through this from here, uh, so that we don't just talk about time as one damn thing after another in the past, to understand that it has a, a presence and the future has a presence and there are ways in the present of being in relation to that. And so we begin in the Ukupacha or the underworld. This is actually Zibalba and you are standing on top of it. So this is the, uh, this is the Maya underworld and these are the Lords of the Dead uh, in um, Zibalba. Uh, and the underworld is the place of the ancestors and it's also the past, right? And it's populated. And the people, and this is the way I mentioned Zibalba, that we should pay particular attention to, uh, coming back to that idea that there are other people in the world who got this more correct than we did, um, are the Maya, right? Because the Maya, what they don't know about underworlds isn't worth knowing. If you consider the geology of this place, um, the cenotes and, and the idea of water as life um, if you remember the episode with Vita Austin, like water is the actual ectoplasm from Ghostbusters 2. We don't know where it comes from. We're made of it. And it responds to like awareness. I'm not going to use psychic response or what have you. And here we are basically on some sort of limestone cheese block filled with water that's the underworld. Um, that Not just that, because when you actually look at the like Popo Vu in particular or Maya creation myths, um, first of all, the rain god is chthonic, so there is that understanding of the rain cycle of bringing it through. But the shape of the Yucatan is because of a monster-killing asteroid that hit this place. And when um, I was talking to Miguel about this on his show recently, he liked in Animistic where I said, Gnosticism can only have come from the desert. Like, it is a desert song. It's made of that aridity and that heat and that danger. Country does that, right? And so here we are on this underworld, this incredible wet 
profound underworld filled with like deeply ancient monsters and this cyclical idea of creation and rebirth. And it's the, the place in the world that killed the dinosaurs and is filled with this idea of this living intelligence uh, and water, right? So there's going to be a, a fair bit of Maya stuff in this for reasons that um, will make sense. So uh, most of you know, I did uh, Four Winds shamanic training last year with Alberto Violdo. And a shaman once asked him why Westerners don't bury their dead. And he said, well, we do. And the shaman's like, then why are all of you followed by these like zombie restless dead that are around every one of you? And well, that's not good, is it? Right? Um, and he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> so we are that bad at coming into relation with the dead, of caring for the dead, and, uh, and, and, uh, and an understanding of their felt and continued presence that to Incan shamans, we, they didn't think we buried our dead. That's how shit we are at this, right? And I find that really kind of fascinating. Uh, we, and when Mitch was on the show, Mitch Horowitz, he wrote about being a believing historian, uh, which is to say, obviously, he's very interested in new thought and, and so on. So he's, whatever that means, a believing historian. And we had a good little chat about every historian is a believing historian. It's just that most of them believe shit, like they believe the official reality version of it. You cannot be an historian without being a believing one. And you either believe that when the dead are dead, they are gone, or you have something and then you end up surrounded by restless dead, or you have something far more healthy and a different framework of it, right? Um, and so we bring the dead to the edge of our circle in ways that prevent them to speak, uh, from speaking. And there are places like Chichen Itza, I'm very interested in how in a Western context, we try to resurrect the dead and, and not realize that's actually what we're doing. So all the names of everything in Chichen Itza is a guess because it was only dug up from rubble 150 years ago. And now it's this like new age site. Uh, and, and, and so we build history, we don't find it. And not just that, you kind of, which I get, you're not allowed to walk up it and it's surrounded by like freshly mown grass. And here is a place that I'm gonna argue actually never, was never lost, but it became a place of the dead. So we did this accidental necromancy. So we bring the dead to the edge of our circle in ways that prevents them from speaking. Uh, and if we had a model of time, which is the Ukupacha part, that allowed the past to be living in a way that we could come into relation with it, we wouldn't do that. And maybe we wouldn't be surrounded by so many restless dead as we move about the world. Because history making is the business of Ukupacha. It is the business of the underworld and where we came from. And when Gary Luckman was recently on the show in his book talking about Arnold J. Toynbee, one of the famous 20th century historians who used to encounter the past when just reading about it. So he had these sort of spontaneous, whatever you want to call them, again, psychic rare birds, uh, where he would, he would be at different points in history and see it and smell it. And, and this informed his book and or his series of books, right? And that's kind of, that would not look out of place to someone in a non-Western context. Like, of course you can. You have some capacity to uh, either bring up the shades of the dead or, or use skills that can allow you to see or come into relation with it in some way. And, and history making is, an, is a ceremony because you're kind of pulling together pieces of information and first-hand accounts and, and hearing words that haven't been heard for one and a half thousand years, that's spell-making, right? And, and if we knew that when we did it, we'd probably be better at it. 
And it just kind of brings me into mind two things. Maybe the empire really didn't end because if, if we don't have a framework for understanding, you do get one of those Philip K. Dick moments where it's sort of like shuffle the papers. <clears throat> um, I believe we are a sort of three feet up projection of a certain moment in the late Roman empire. Blah, blah, and, and you look at it and go, well, that sounds crazy, except maybe it isn't in the sense of um, Toynbee was just having these experiences of what we call the past. And, and we just, if we had a framework or a topology for it, we'd be a bit better at it. And it also throw in another McKenna, Rome falls nine times a day. Like in this model, it does. In this model, this stuff is never really gone in the sense that it is available. It's wisdom and medicine is available and it's lessons are available to us, right? So it's kind of like we can't not do it. So we might as well be better at it than we are, right? And so we, got, we come to the Maya who again, were better at it. And, uh, and the Maya are the perfect example of uh, a mirror of how we see our own ending, right? So as you're probably familiar, this, no one really kind of knows what happens with the collapse, maybe. I'll get to that. But around 800 AD, there was a mass abandonment of the Maya cities, right? And our guesses tell us more about our own fears than about the Maya, and which we'll, we'll talk about on, on the next page. But the dead will teach us even when we think they're gods. So they show a mirror to us about what we are most afraid of. And I've always been interested in this with history, where over the, say, 200-year span of history as a discipline so far, the thing that we decided killed civilizations was the, the principal kind of like concern of the day. So it began with war and racial superiority, like maybe some people just faded out because they weren't as good. And we tried that on India and so on. We tried that with the Maya. But the trouble is, in the Maya's case, even the victors vanished. So yes, there were wars leading up to the abandonment about 100 years before. But then even the victors, so the cities that won also emptied. And then the next guess was droughts, right? Having just pre, it's very difficult to get a long running drought in the Yucatan because the ground is mostly water and it's the tropics. And the Maya world actually spanned multiple climate areas. So the idea that, and in some cases actually moved to places that were even drier to the point that they were building systems. So they had a capacity to handle different levels of water. So the idea that they ran out of water and moved isn't correct. And the most recent one, of course, because we use this for everything, is climate change. And El Mundo Maya covered multiple climate zones. So if it changed in one spot, like why did, like the mountains would have been fine, the lowlands were different, and so on. So this kind of like maybe climate change, uh, as a guess, tells us something about what we're afraid of today rather than what happened. And that's the dead teaching us, right? Um, there was, however, a volcanic eruption in 800 AD. We'll get to how that works. Um, not to say that the Maya, I mean, they also uh, committed child sacrifice, so they're not perfect, no one is, um, but there, are, there is evidence of cities that deforested around them, particularly to make uh, lime. And so they didn't get it quite right, but that's not enough reason to abandon all your cities. So what actually happens, I think, and this is the theory of Professor Edward Barnhart, is that they never left. So in Maya cities, you bury your dead uh, underneath the floor of your house. And so as more dead people, or, or as more family members become members of the dead, you end up building an extra house next to it and, and so on. And over this process, eventually, the city itself becomes a necropolis. And so you, because what happened with these abandoned cities is there is evidence that people continued to visit them. They just didn't live in them. 
And that would track with the idea that, in fact, they didn't go anywhere. The cities became more a place of the dead than a place of the living. And so you move elsewhere because it's mostly populated with the dead. And if you actually go to these places now, and we will, um, but if you go to these places now that practice it that way and you have that kind of inner capacity, they're humming. Like they're, they're, you, you, you talk to psychics who will wander around these towns, like there's still markets going on in these cities, right? So. This is Professor Barnhart's idea that they probably moved uh, because they became necropoli. But the other thing that's really, I think, useful and germane for this point in time, uh, because we've just passed the 2012 um, 13th Bucktoon ending, right, is that this happened approximately around a Bucktoon switchover. And we'll get to that in a sec, right? But Bucktoons are times of uh, transformation and renewal. And what you actually see uh, evidence towards the end of the 10th is that kings began to be depicted in council with nobles. So there's actually a change in governance going on. And then after that Bucktoon, always depicted that way, right? So there would have been the sense there's been a volcano. Um, we're actually at the end of a way of organizing reality. And we should flow with that rather than fight against it, right? Because you can kind of track back to the ninth Bakhtun when the kingly era actually arose. And I remember um, Paul Weston was on a podcast, like it would have been January 2013, so straight after December 21, 2012, and everyone's like, ha, 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 it didn't happen. And he was the first person, because I was secretly thinking this too, he was the first person who publicly said, I think it did happen. I think, I think December 21, 2012 did happen and we'll see what that's about. And it's literally 10 years later and I think it happened. I think a fucking Bakhtun shift happened, right? Because we're in the same state of we have reached the end of absolutely every kind of governance system that works well and, the, and we're looking at very real permanent changes to how it is we live. And my um, other evidence for why this might be the case and why we should listen to the Maya who are really, really good at this stuff and how this moment in time is some kind of Toynbean parallel is soccer is now fatal again. That's weird. That's fucking weird. The two times in history when soccer is fatal is here and now. Now that's something. I don't know what that's about, right? But this is um, what happens when you take the dead and you take time seriously. You have a map that is just uh, a little bit better than one damn thing after another. I do just want to drop in here um, Dr. Adi Sixkiller Clark's work, uh, which is mentioned in Animistic, and she's been on the show ages ago, right? But when she did her tour of like a Mundo Maya, um, Guatemala, and here and Belize, she'd be talking to these elders. Who said, who said that like the, the ruins, as we call them, were always in use. And so the old people knew the songs and the chants that would actually bring the sky people back to converse with them. And at the time she was writing the book in some places, only one or two who could call them back down. But why I find this interesting in a conference like this is, of course, the long association between UFO phenomena and the dead. So these cities that we call ruins that Professor Barnhart believes in Acropoli, well, that's where you would go to talk to the ancestors to these beings. And we actually have quite good what we'd call ufological um, data, experiential data, to broadly map with that. And the reason they told her all this stuff is she's in Turtle Island, but she's Indigenous as well. So most of them would say, oh, we'll tell you all this stuff. And also these lights, they only appear to uh, the Indigenous, right? So that's ancestral. If they're only appearing to the Indigenous of the area, you, you've got some kind of ancestral play going on there. So I had to put the Maya UFOs uh, in there somewhere, and that was the right place for it. Because Things like Bakhtuns are part of Maya deep time. Deep time 
is a uh, term borrowed from geology. And this is kind of fun, right? So we've been talking, obviously, because it's a Gnostic conference, although you wouldn't know it from looking. Um, the Bible has a creation event from just a few thousand years ago, and it mostly occupies itself by doing that with its own Near Eastern land claim. So the Bible is kind of what we force Indigenous people to do today, which is a kind of cultural justification of why a certain group of people should own a piece of land. And there's not actually much time <laughs> devoted to creation. And getting back to Alberto, who is, by the way, a medical anthropologist, amongst other things, Alberto Violdo, um, he says, Western creation myths, myths concern themselves with space. So God separates and then creates things and, and so on. And that isn't just in the Bible, because if you combine that with what Vine Delorius said about the Greek fixation on um, the external physical origin of things, you end up with, uh, I don't want to say an obsession, but like a fixation on space, whereas indigenous creation myths focus more on time which is why um, we have lots of stuff and no time, he says, and they have all the time and no stuff. But it's also how we end up with real estate agents uh, is kind of the joke. And it's, but it's broadly correct. Like if, if I think of the Americas and I think of indigenous Australia and I think of Vedic or pre-Vedic astrology, the capacity to understand time and spend millennia, and this is obviously an astro thing, but spend millennia understanding the, the nuances and, and divisions of, of time, what, they, what we did with matter, they did with time. And, and that's where I come back to, we need to learn from people who got this, like I would prefer a, uh, I don't know, a, a German made aircraft than you know, a classical Maya made aircraft, but I might prefer a classical Maya calendar to a German one is kind of the point, right? Hang on, clickety click. Maya deep time. So it actually has a recent creation event as well, but that's actually a reset point. So what happened in the last kind of like big time reset was, and there's a little bit of maths here and there's some at the end. Nate and I were kind of joking that even though it's a Sunday, you're going to have to do a bit of maths, but it's not too bad. Um, this is where all the cycles above 20 years were set out to 13. So it's kind of picture a clock, uh, of clock face of 12, except their biggest one is a 13 for reasons that we'll come back to. So this current cycle or epoch that we're in has a creation date, but it's more a centering of the different cycles of which we find ourselves. Uh, and the main one from a human experience is the 260-day cycle. And I would argue, especially for the astrologers in the room, I have this new age belief that, and it's literally just a belief, that every little corner of the world has like a true piece of like a worldwide belief system that once we kind of like put it together, we will, even though no one's going anywhere, we'll like leave the planet or something, right? I don't actually believe it. I think it's more like a new age joke that I play on myself. But the 260 calendar was like the metaphysics. And I think it's so important of Mesoamerica because it wasn't just a Maya calendar. You found this with the Olmecs, you found this with the Inca. Um, it is like the single uniting metaphysics of Mesoamerica is a 260 day count. Now, why 260 days? Well, that's nine months. And what else is nine months? And this is where I think the 13 comes from. So in the Maya cosmology, you have a scaling up of human experience out into the millions of years in some kind of harmonic relationship. So um, a framework, a harmonic map of time, right? And why the 260, I think, belongs, because we don't really have that in astrology, uh, but I think we could. We could put that in without it 
fucking up anything else inside how kind of like Westerners do astrology at the moment. And it's worth thinking about because we don't really have this nine-month human gestation harmonic cycle, right? Um, and so this is something that I think people should pay attention to. And when I was on a call with Wade Davis, the Wade Davis, at the end of last year, and obviously an anthropologist, and uh, he made the observation that 90% of the world's entheogens, because we think of entheogens as shamanic, which they are, but 90% of them come from the Americas and more specifically like a sliver of it, of like Central America to the top of, of South America. 90% of the world's entheogens come from here. And it's the same overlap as this 260 calendar. And as people in this room are probably have done entheogens themselves, that's interesting to me. So these people have thousands of years of entheogen experience and they come up with a framework on metaphysics of time that is like nothing else we've ever seen and we should be paying attention to. It's kind of the point, right? Come on, mouse. So the 260 calendar predates possibly the 360. Um, but what actually might have happened there is a, an evidence challenge, right? Because I don't see how else it's just more important to living experience because 360 is like solar, 260 is human. So you have that kind of like expanding out moment. But and you start with a human and you basically move out to the millions of years and you have a way of an intimate, immediate relationality in the context of something that you may not necessarily experience because time only appears to move in a straight line when you look at the fact that your human life of 70 something years looking out over a circle of millions is going to look straight. So there's a, uh, there's a way of being in quite possibly an eternal universe that also adds meaning and experience at a relational level. And this looks back uh, or kind of overlaps with Vedic Deep Time. My um, first book, that's right, Starships goes into this in detail, but it's just kind of interesting to me that the further back in time we go, the better we get at time. Uh, and in fact, this kind of very long count stuff is found, I think, at a time depth of 20,000 years. And it's at this level that you can get a reasonable amount of overlap, or a tantalizing at least, amount of overlap between Maya and Vedic. And that's because 20,000 years ago, you're dealing with the same kind of ancestral group when you, the, the, of basically how we moved about the planet or migrated around it. 20,000 years ago, the ancestors, or a bit more, the ancestors of what is now modern day India and here were basically the same people. So that's kind of the general thesis of it. I want you to remember some of these numbers, the 432, I mean, 360 and 12 is easy, but remember the 432 in particular. So what we have in this kind of like Vedic time is a scaling up of human experience, so one year being 360 days plus the bit that you used to configure it. Um, and a divine year is 360 earth years. And so the 12,000 divine years is the 43200 there. A day and a night are 43200 seconds. So this 432 ratio defines within these yuga cycles, sub eras of it, that gives them 10% twilight moving into and out of each yugas, which is the exact same amount of twilight you get uh, on a day on earth, right? Like, so sunrise and sunset is 10% of the time of the sun's movement. So you have once more this harmonic relationship, which is like impossible in a materialist universe of a human life and a divine life and the universe and a day are all in harmonic relation. And there'll be more, unfortunately, maths, but more harmony as well towards the end. I just needed to bring that in. So what is what do we do with like, timelines or time cycles of millions of years, right? And this is uh, where we can look elsewhere at things like dream time. 
Uh, Dreamtime beings, this is what the Dreamtime is. They created the landscape, let's say millions of years ago, and then became the landforms that they created. Now, what that does is shows this kind of idea, again, of the ever-present origin. So the presence of the creation event is there and uh, that you can uh, come into resonance with, right? So the Jukapa word, which is, a, let's just say, Central Australia. Well, Jukapa is like the... Central Australian word for dream time. And it literally means to see and understand the law. How is that the same as dream time as a creation event where these beings walk across the world and then become the world? Well, it's this idea that the dream time should have been translated because it was an English word that we kind of uh, tacked onto what we saw in Aboriginal Australia would have been, a better word would have been originating from eternity or an expression of eternity. So there's this idea that there is a perpetual creation event, which is this sort of dream time moment that we, via ceremony and just living right, fall into alignment with. So here's this kind of lived idea of how you can have short time cycles like 260 days and the millions of years. So there's a metaphysical framework for kind of understanding this idea. So it's both an epoch and a process, um, and as well as the patterns and laws that arrange and cohere the cosmos. So if you compare that to what we have with a biblical or materialist natural framework, is that we have creation events happen back then and are done, and they're in a formed universe. So they're not in a universe that is in this kind of like constant evolving relationality. Um, and this is, it's really fun that animistics out because I can just like wall of text from my own book, but in a machine universe, so in the TikTok world, the past implies something that is over and complete and fixed. And that's an idea that we don't, I think, something like remote viewing disproves. But you also find that to be immensely alien to pretty much anyone other than us. Like, what do you mean it's over and done? Like, my ancestors, the past is another country kind of thing. It's, it's all, like, a mess. And it's really fun to kind of begin to try and learn how to learn um, how to change that, right? So Hannah Rachel Bell, who is sort of like the co-author, uh, co-expressor of David Mowell Jale's um, really profound ideas, who's an Aboriginal uh, philosopher. I mentioned him a lot in Animistic. Um, but when she was amongst his people, like the Narinian storytellers, she originally thought their English wasn't that good because um, they spoke in the present tense when they're talking about stories of the past and, and ancestors and dreamtime stories, until she realized that actually this is a deliberate spell. They're, they're using English to actually convey their experience of time as these ever-present kind of events. And so when Moel Jale would tell stories of the past, it wasn't because it was so experiential and place-bound, he'd kind of say, well, it happened before our time or sometimes in ancestral times. But when he would say ancestral times, it would also be conveying that like the ancestors are still here. So um, this, again, you have the oldest living cultures on earth have this understanding of time as this ever present thing that we can be in relation to. And we've smeared it out into this one damn thing after another to make the trains work, right? And you get the, basically the same thing among the, um, the Yarlan. So a person in this kind of living universe flips from being an actor in time to being a heartbeat of time. And just stay with that idea of heartbeat of time to, well, for when we get to the end. Again, clickety-click. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Uh, again, moving back to the Hopi. So here is where we can sort of spy down to some sort of worldwide, healthier, probably much older, even in a normal historical sense, uh, framework of, of time in a living universe. Because there is something, the Hopi language do not have an awareness of time that could be separated out from its awareness of spatiality. People say that the Hopi didn't have a word from time. It's not quite right. It's that... Um, it was, it is relational to the moment and where you are. So much like the dream time, there are two basic modes of existence. There's the manifested, which is all of this stuff around us, and the manifesting, right? So um, the manifesting is, which are all of those things not yet explicit or present to the senses. And again, just to make the point, I have never been able to discover any Aboriginal word for time as an abstract concept. We abstracted time into the TikTok world rather than having it as that kind of living Proust and the Madeleine moment. So that's the um, past. So all of that showing that the past is in fact a living place. It is the Ukupacha, it is the underworld. This is the Kaipacha, this is the middle world, this is the present, the place of our being. And I'm gonna use another term, uh, sort of my next $5 word in this presentation, survivance. And it kind of means ongoing presence. So part of the job of the middle world is to bring into ceremony the past for the purposes of basically building the right kind of future for our descendants. So there's this idea of survivance and native survivance, which is more than survival or endurance. It's uh, a balance in a relationship uh, to the past, present and future. And survivance is this word where you go, there's something about that. It's a lived carrying on and ongoingness of ancestral of um, recipes and, and, and the right word for grandmother and all this kind of stuff. And that's, that's the work of, of like decoloniality, right? And, and part of this idea of survivance is that the essential underlying premise of the cosmos is unity. The star constellations and heavens, earth, the flora and fauna, air, fire and water, and words that express the cosmology are one cloth. Um, images that dance in human consciousness also fall within this definition of reality. So reality is the totality 
and especially this present moment, this kaipacha, is the totality of all the stuff going on, including what's going on within you during that moment, during that ceremony, during that meal, during whatever it is that you happen to be. This is the notion of it being this one uh, cloth or, or fabric, which is the pacha, which is the, the whole stuff. Back to the Maya, of course. Now, there's this amazing book uh, from the early 90s, 1992, called Maya Cosmos. And maybe people don't realize just kind of how recent Mayanists decoded um, Maya language, right? And it's sort of in our lifetimes very much so. And uh, Maya Cosmos was this book that came out, and we think this is kind of normal now, but it's quite impressive for its day, right? It's 30 years old now, so am I, no further questions. Um, basically, these Mayanists, whilst doing their work, would obviously be living with local Maya here in the Yucatan and, and what have you. And David Friedel in particular noticed that the ceremonies that the Maya would do for the, the laying out of fields to, to plant the corn and so on, centering the universe and making sure the four corners were right. It's like, this is the same ritual structure that we see in the cities. And now at the time, we had this belief that the Maya civilization ended. Like it ended with the, the abandonment of the cities. And so we, we know that's not the case for indigenous peoples anywhere now, that there is a continuity, even in places that are even worse hit like Tasmania. Um, but he kind of, well, these authors came out and said, they actually didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, we, what we find in, in contemporary Maya culture is a, a continuity uh, and obviously update, but like a continuity of what happened during the classic Maya period. And that's a big deal. That's like a big statement to make from, uh, which we now consider to be normal. And not just that, but he managed to learn and kind of, again, decode is, is the only word I've got for it, a whole bunch of uh, star law, which we're going to get to, that was in these various cities, right? So it was this process of going, they actually didn't go anywhere. And this information and this logic and this metaphysics of time and place, of pacha, is what was expressed in the cities, right? So um, unfortunately, the shaman in, in question called the ceremony a glory hole that he created that uh, didn't translate. It's, I've never seen a glory hole look quite like that. Uh, but what essentially happens here is a regeneration of the order of the cosmos and a rejoining of the two separate worlds, right? And you do this, there's an old word for the dream time, which means the turnaround. And it's this idea of moving energy into the other world and back. And it's, again, that relationality. And hence, you kind of get that centripetal feeling of a word like the turnaround. And that's what these guys are doing, right? Like you're actually sending energy into the other worlds and, and receiving energy back. It's more of the portal stuff that we were talking about this morning. Um, and so you, you have this kind of reciprocity, which is the work of the Kaipacha, because you are dealing with your ancestors and bringing them into contemporary life. It's that survivance idea. And this is what uh, the Maya was so good at this. Right, so uh, the Quiche hearth, so the Quiche speakers are in like Guatemala highlands for the most part. The three hearth stones, there's a sort of triangle of stones on a, on a traditional Quiche hearth. And these are three stars in Orion. They're not the belt. When I first looked at that, I'm like, how do you do that for a hearth? It's sort of like one bit of the belt and two of the legs. I'll show you on the next couple of slides. But what that means is that every evening when a Quiche uh, woman sets up the hearth to cook, She's recreating the universe. She's recreating an original creation event because the first act of the gods was to create the hearth at the center of the universe where the first fire of creation could be started. So this Maya idea, or we're looking at it in the Maya, it's, it's quite universal, of centering the world um, and like the creation of the four sides is not just done, but like, just think about that. It's, it's like when you turn the stove on to cook, 
in, in a Kiche household, you recreate the universe and, and you intentionally bring yourself every evening into alignment with that, that creation event, right? That's the work of the Kaipacha. That's this idea of bringing the, the, the past into that lived presence, right? So humans are resonant. And there's this term. This is the third and final $5 word, I promise. And I love it. It's my new cellar door, like hierophany. It even sounds nice to say. But Mircea Eliade uh, came up with it. And it means the manifestation of the sacred in normal phenomenon. And the Maya were off the chain good at this, right? Like we just mentioned Chichen Itza and like this morning and tomorrow and the next day, there's obviously the very famous descending snake of the, of the equinox sun. That's hierophany. That is painting with the forces of the universe and, and, and dropping into relation with them, right? So Maya cities don't recreate. A better word is generate creation. So, and even just the organizing of the hearth, what you were doing when you come into resonance with that is you generate creation. And this is, that's the work of uh, Kaipacha when you can, like, that's being in relation to a living or eternally expressed past. And so this is David Friedel, who um, we're about to get to some pictures, which I hope Chris will like. Uh, with this knowledge, he kind of looked back at some of the sites and cities that he'd been working on and going, holy shit, like every major image from Maya cosmic symbolism is probably a map, a map of the sky. And we're going to get some of it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move quickly through it because if you haven't read the Popol Vu and other things, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter, but the pictures will kind of show you uh, what he was going on with. And again, this is 1992, so he, these guys were well ahead of their time. So the hearthstones, uh, there's a close-up of the turtle in a sec, but um, the way Maya creation works is that the corn god sort of emerged out of the carapace of, of the turtle. But you can kind of see the th three little triangles of the hearthstone there. Um, and the creation then... Um, the maize tree is also the world tree emerging from the total carapace. So you got your uh, Milky Way there. When, when it's looking like that, you have the uh, maize tree emerging up uh, out of it. But pay attention to that. That's like the world tree, and we'll come back to it. Here, I promise a close-up of the turtle. So you can kind of see it's like one bit of the belt and, and two of the legs. And in the middle of it, you actually have the nebula, which looks like the smoke coming up from it. And by the way, um, Gemini is two peccaries fucking. There is... Um, uh, that's just apropos of nothing. I just thought if you're wondering what's going on over there, that's two peccaries having sex. So uh, that's the end of my presentation. I was waiting for that. <laughs> so this is the world tree. This is Wakancha. Uh, and this is what I mean by their hierophany was off the chain good. It's not even just a matter of saying like the Milky Way is the river of souls that we all travel on or, or what have you. It, uh, it was like watching an animation. As you move through the night, the different stars tell the story of what's going on. So you can kind of see the Big Dipper up the top there. Um, Friedel thinks this is a recreation of a creation event. Um, and I think it's right. Like if you actually were just to click down through this, uh, when it's upright like this, you have uh, the world tree. And when it's down, you have it as a, a, the cosmic monster. So in, this, in the story of the night sky in certain cities where it's kind of like reflected in the architecture of it, it's not just like this one points at Venus and this one does that. You're you're involved on a nightly basis in this living creation story, right? Um, this is my favorite one because it's like being back at school camp. Uh, so you can kind of see along the top there, the Milky Way is a canoe, everything's fine. Canoe starts to sink, 
getting at a bit of an angle, and then it goes full Titanic by the third one. And here's, again, a story you can kind of see depicted in the same area. And this process happens, there you go at the bottom, the canoe sinks over a four-hour period, right? So wherever you are in the world, it's not just the Milky Way, wherever you are in the Maya world, you have this entire language of this hierophany, this kind of moving and painting with the rest of the universe, right? So the rest of the universe is always in a contextual relationship to you. And again, off the chain, right? So there's my favorite one, uh, the Ushmal Palace of the Governor. It looks, so, so there's like this um, five kilometer sight line to an older city called Napat. And you can kind of look out across out from the Palace of the Governor across a double-headed jaguar throne on the plaza, straight out to a temple in Napat, which you can kind of like see. And right above that temple is the maximum southern excursion of Venus once every eight years. So it's, it is everywhere. It's not like, oh, these, the, the three pyramids are like the, um, not that I'm throwing shade at Giza, obviously, but like the three pyramids are just like Orion's belt. The Maya were just multidimensional with this process of being in relation uh, to the stars, such as we call them, right? And so what does this do? What is all this kind of hierophany and painting would do? Well, this is something... Um, Alberto says uh, about his teachings, but my mentor used to tell me to open sacred space and get out of the way. And that was part of the kind of training when it comes to healing. You call in the, the lineage and, and you do the work, right? And this is the work of the Kaipacha. You um, open sacred space and get out of the way. Uh, so this whole idea of centering the world, whether on a grand ritual level of entire Maya cities or a Kiche hearth, um, ceremonial locations are centers for ceremony, or not for ceremony, but because ceremonies are performed there, right? So the ancient Maya, by, by virtue of doing this, were experts in discerning complex and intricate patterns of repetition and symmetry in both human time and cosmological time. So this comes back to that idea that I, I, I would get in a German plane and, and pay attention to a Mayan calendar. These guys were like off the chain good, right, at this kind of stuff. And they codified these patterns into dozens of calendrical cycles. And not just that, I'm very interested in this from obviously a predictive perspective. The days when these cycles overlapped formed a matrix of complex rituals in which the rhythms of life and interactions with the other world beings played themselves out. So it wasn't just clock keeping, right? It is a whole framework of being in relation to the past and the future, which is the work of the center. It's the work of now, right? And we call that, well, I call that presencing at the circle, and that's based on Heidegger. So um, I talk about this a lot, but the 260, more specifically, like the 20 days uh, that begin the Maya 260 process are living beings, right? And so I say all Wednesdays are the one Wednesday. And how that works is that as you tick through these 20 days, you're in the presence of that being um, for that particular day. So there's a specific relationship on a very real sense Today and 20 days in the past and 20 days ahead are in fact the one day. They are the one being, right? And so there's this entire language of, of that's available in the present, that Kaipacha stuff of, of being in relation to all of it. And wherever you go, it, it doesn't necessarily have to cohere into one global system. What you actually find is just that being present, being present with the beings, being present with the ancestors as the work of the center. Um, and Heidegger, and this is kind of cool, right? Like, um, I mostly like phenomenology. Phenomenology is, 
is, is something that had to happen to Western philosophy because of that cosmological estrangement. It was, it was a response to the idea that we can't really know anything in this sort of separate universe and, and a little bit um, kicking Wittgenstein, which I, I also approve of. Um, but we have this word from German, Raum, which we use as room, like rooms of a house. But a room of a house is just like this empty space in this fixed structure. Um, Raum is more nuanced, right? And, uh, it, and so Heidegger considered it a bounded clearing for life. And the, bounder, the boundary wasn't a border, it was a horizon at the process of something begin, begins its presencing. So when you think about how ceremony works and time, we actually have in kind of European languages a way to look at Maya cosmology eye to eye, or at least begin to, right? And I, I think about this, like the Western magical experience inside a circle, which we consider a barrier. Well, what if that's the, the point of presenting? And, and how does that change how you do magic when you realize that it's the point of presenting? All right. Um, so that's the business of the Kaipacha, right? Uh, and this is from Unraveling the Spreading Cloth of Time, which is a collection of indigenous metaphysical essays that were written kind of like, in, uh, in memoriam for Vine Delorio. And I love this stuff, right? Like, so we participate in seasonal time. We are not above it, nor pretended masters of it or separated from it. And this again is why you have Maya calendars that begin at the level of the timing of conception, right? Um, we participate in ceremony with all those who have done so before. So we bring the ancestors to the, to the presencing around the circle for all those now who cannot for whatever reason. So people who are unwell and what have you, and for all of those to come. There is no separation. So we perform ceremony for the benefit of the descendants, right? And this is time out of mind reaching back beyond current memory to memory in the blood, our very DNA reaching backwards and forwards. All right, so the Hanak Pacha, this is why we do it. So the Hanak Pacha is the upper world or the place of our becoming. So we had the past and then we had the presencing of the past as the work of the, the present of the middle world. And the Hanak Pacha is future as strategic topology. And there's a story, and the story's not quite the right word, but it's how uh, curanderos in a contemporary, like Cusco context, think of this stuff. Um, but so the Laika are kind of the, the ascended masters of this curandero cosmology, right? So they're the, the wise shaman types from Inca days. And at the, uh, after the Spanish conquest or during it, they decided, well, we're gonna lose this at least for the next 500 years. So they concealed their treasures in the future. Uh, and Huasca Inca, which is uh, like the Lord of the underworld in, in some of these uh, like curanderismos, um, he deliberately entered the underworld. So you have this idea of, and I heard the same thing about uh, from a contemporary like uh, Maya practitioner, that there's in some parts of El Mundo Mayo, there's the belief that the, the Maya actually, because the Spanish showed up, went into the other world for 500 years or in fact in the process of coming back now. So it's this idea of moving uh, the future being a strategic topology that you can actually use, right? And this is the place of our becoming. And it's, if we can come into relation with our past, which we can, this same logic allows us to come into relation with what we call the future. And again, if you think, well, that doesn't sound right, just drop back into what we can learn, quote or uh, unquote, from remote viewing, and you'll kind of like find your way there, right? So the Laika have this idea of dreaming the world into being, and it's not quite the dream time, right? But it's not not, because the dream time isn't really the word. It was put on it by the English, but yeah, you want it to work, and it's something like this. But, uh, and this is from Alberto Violdo's Heart of the Shaman. 
But the Laika understood, this is very Gnostic, that waking dreams, such as the recollections we hold about our childhood, are real, but they are not true. They are a bad dream. And the Laika know that the daydream seems real, but it is not true, and that the only, only the sacred dream is true, even when it seems utterly unreal. So this I love, and it was kind of, Miguel almost said this uh, earlier today, <laughs> but the void left by the Laika when they're like, okay, I'm noping out for the next 500 years, and then we're coming back, um, was taken over by the caster of spells, who convinced people that the daydream they were living in was not only real, but was actually true. So this is, you can call it the Tico or what have you. But in the absence of the Laika doing the sacred dream work, there was the, this entity, the caster of spells that made us kind of think capitalism was real, I guess. Um, the work of the Hanakapacha is the work and the concern over the descendants, right? So we are in relation to the descendants when we're in relation to the upper world. And this is what I mean, I want dream time to work with this, but it kind of doesn't. Uh, there's this idea, again, in certain parts of like Kurandaristic traditions in the Andes of um, these elders who do nothing but dream a better world into being for their descendants in 10,000 years time. So they're the ancestors of 10,000 years. And it's this process of bringing your awareness um, gently and lovingly to what that might look like, right? And this, again, we kind of know this stuff from parapsychology that, that on short time scales, that has an impact. Now, what happens if you do that and you're really good at it? Like you have centuries of experience. And this is the kind of stuff that it invites us. And I think is happening. This future can reach back to us like a giant hand. Um, I think this is happening. Whatever's going on in the world right now with the murderous soccer and so on, is somehow part of this. There, there, is a, there is a future way of being here that's way better <laughs> than what's currently happening. And it's just going to probably suck quite a bit uh, to get to it. Um, I have some experience with what Pete Carroll, co-originator of uh, Chaos Magic, called Retroactive Enchantment. And one of them, he said this idea like 30 years ago, which is if, you, if a tarot reading turns out to be correct, what you should do at the time is like the Wonder Woman dance. Um, and that was because it's so unusual that it's almost like you can, in the past, you doing the cards will like feel that in the future. So the, it was a sort of this way of teaching yourself how to get better at divination by doing something that would be presumably easier to kind of see up the timeline. And I kind of liked that idea. I thought that was sort of fun. Um, didn't really do it. did it a few times and it does kind of work. Um, Wonder Woman dancing isn't ideal when you're like 16 and already struggling with certain things. Um, in Animistic, I tell the story of visiting myself from the future. And, and this happened as people typically do with entheogenic experiences. I was um, dealing with a lot of stuff like uh, usual things you go through with entheogens like sex and body and acceptance and all that kind of thing, right? Uh, and it was with mushrooms. And it, it brought me back to a moment when I was in my early 20s uh, in New Zealand. I just met my partner, James. We're in the, the disgusting throes of love um, that happens in those first six months of a relationship. And we were in his house and we were poor in 22. So we, it was like the, the classic um, mattress on the, on the floor kind of situation. And the, the rental house had like a half built or maybe broken little balcony area. So there were these double doors and it was just a platform, but you couldn't go out there because there was no um, boundary. And I was joking, lying in the mattress, that this is where the UFOs land to come to visit him. And then I'm in the, the peak of this very high dose, I think it was 18 dried grams um, psilocybin experience. 
going through this work and I'm like, well, where did the work I was doing at the time, like, where did this come from? And all of a sudden I'm spiraling down into this memory. Like I'm above James's rental house from those two decades, less than two decades, thank God. But I'm spiraling down and I land on that platform looking in at myself and James. And I'm like, I am the fucking alien that I was talking about 20 fucking years ago. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, and it was one of those like, end of movie, this kind of stuff, like, wow, what the hell was going on there moment that made me realize that I, I literally was, I had this sensation of something just like gently landing in the past when I'm on this mattress. And then in the peak of mushrooms, I'm like, oh my God, it's me. I mean, you could make the case that it would be more fun if it was an actual alien rather than me, because we're nevertheless stuck with like, well, it wasn't an alien though, was it? Uh, but it was the most amazing thing that made me realize, hang on a minute, there's something going on with time that doesn't fit in the TikTok world. Um, so Pachaography Revisited, we just kind of did a framework of how to be with time in a way that I think is topological. And this is what I've come up with. This might literally be time travel. So it might, you know, Chris has got no one's going anywhere. I've got either no one's going anywhere or anyone can go anywhere whenever they want. It's not as catchy, but you understand what I mean, right? So the past is a living geography, underworld, and it is an essential function of a human being to come into relation and resonance with it in the present, middle world, so that this ongoingness, this survivance, co-creates and co-dreams our collective becoming, upper world. So here's a, here's a topology of time that actually gives us a telos to go with it. And again, so we've come to the point where it's like we worked out what we got wrong, we looked at who got it right, and so we finally circle back in the last section to what might we do with this information? How might this inform what it is we do? And I would like to make the bold case, if you will, for a return to uh, geocentrism. Let me explain why. The solve for Tarnas's cosmological estrangement, as far as I can tell, is to return to relation, right? So, and, and this works, this is why I kind of want to replace everything with this animus framework on, on a temporary basis until we no longer need it. In anarchist frameworks, which I'm very positive towards, we talk about, say, centralization versus decentralization. But if you actually look at that from an animus perspective, the polarity is between relation and estrangement. So if we look at like politics, that is a polarity of relation and estrangement in interhuman relations, body, intra-human relations. So that's like, you know, microbiome, blah, blah, blah. And then in time, we have like more than human relations. Are you estranged or are you in relation, right? So embodiment, which has sort of been key praxis for uh, anything in, in sort of like left political world and even for better and for worse uh, in magic for maybe the last 20 years. But embodiment is incomplete until, well, it's never complete, but the process requires intemporalization, right? So this is kind of why the presentation's Gnostic. If you're not doing that uh, decolonizing of TikTok time, then the, the embodiment process is going to halt at a certain point, right? And so this is what I mean by, I'm going to make a case for geocentrism. So some people have flat earth. We've got no one's going anywhere. My version of that is double down and say, let's return to geocentrism. Um, the geocentric cosmovision is quite literally what you see and experience in the universe with you at its center, which I genuinely believe you are, right? Uh, and so Dr. Tom Cowan, who got 
blew up quite famous in the last couple of years because he had that video about 5G and so on, which we'll no, we will not get to. Um, heliocentrism teaches us to distrust our own experience. So we lost heliocentrism in the cosmological estrangement of Copernicus and then Descartes and then Kant, right? So heliocentrism, which is the idea that the sun is at the center of our solar system, teaches us to distrust our own experience. So you're there experiencing sunrise and some neckbeard know-it-all can come along and go, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is you're on this blah, 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 that's spinning around the blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know what? That actually isn't what's happening, right? That is an abstraction, coming back to Vine Deloria, that is an abstraction out of our um, mechanical devices that we've used to develop that. What's actually happening in that extraction is that you are in relation to those mechanical devices, right? But it's not, it's literally not what is being experienced. So you have this uh, gaslighting that comes with heliocentrism. And Tom has this in his book about the heart. Now, let me explain why I think that's relevant. Um, this is from Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. Um, so geocentrism is the perspective that allowed traditional people who are intimately familiar with these rhythms, rhythms to find their way home or a field by observing the stars. They knew how to plant, tend to, and harvest crops and understand the unique pattern of seasonal and celestial events that each individual was born into. And it's a perspective that Steiner, who keeps showing up in today's presentations, emphasized over and over as the archetypal or perfect rhythm. So Steiner, in his health discussions is saying geocentrism is healthy and heliocentrism is not, right? So the human being and her rhythmic system of the heart and lungs, pulse and breathing, exists in the ratio of 140, the creation rhythm, this is the Steiner thing, right? Are you bowing to the four directions um, of the perfect square? So there is a, a human heart breath rhythm that Steiner believed to be natural and healthy and it's very much like the centering of the world for the Maya cosmos, but it gets kind of like more interesting. I found this, so obviously it's lit in green, had no heart attacks ever. Tom in the book does say, obviously correlation isn't causation, but this is how geocentric societies live. Um, sustainably for thousands of years, in the case of Aboriginal Australia, 70,000 and counting, uh, often improve the health of the ecosphere rather than fucking it up, which uh, heliocentric ones do, didn't cause widespread extinction, had no toxic chemicals in their breast milk and never died of heart attacks, ever. Now, if you actually line that up against the one ever-growing heliocentric worldview, unsustainable societies degrade the biosphere, numerous toxic chemicals in breast milk. Again, it was from a medical book. That's why that keeps showing up. Uh, and at high risk of suffering a heart attack, right? So correlation isn't causation. But what is going on when you decenter yourself from your own experience of the universe and you drop out of relation to the whole cosmos? And I'm on like a like heart health journey at the moment, right? And the the single biggest causes of like literally the single biggest causes of this kind of stuff is loneliness, depression, sadness, estrangement, estrangement, estrangement. And so you look at this and go, the heliocentric lifeway is literally a machine lifeway of estrangement that tells you that you aren't important, you are not in cosmic relation, you're on the edge of the edge of the edge of the edge, right? And that's really profound. I hope there are some RuPaul fans in the room. Um, the good thing about having animistic out is that I can just copy paste. Now you don't need to know this, it is in the book. Um, I'm just gonna jump through a bunch of them. This is the second round of math. So remember the 432 and remember the kind of human um, annual year, great solar or great platonic year harmonics, right? So a solar day is 24 hours, 
2460, you get the 1440, that's 864,000 seconds, which is sort of the double of the 432. 12 hour time span, so idealized day of day or night, um, you get the 432 again. And this is where we kind of get the harmonics of what we used to call space time, but I would like you to call place time. So one, let's look at a square foot. So there's the 144, pay a particular attention to that because uh, you go back up. So a square foot is an entire day in minutes. Um, so you actually, one day, so one spin of the earth, one square foot is the same number in it, right? All these numbers you can kind of work out. This is the work of Randall Carlson, um, and I should actually mention that. When he brings in the platonic solids, you start, there's the 1440 again, you start to see some of those repeating numbers. Um, each season in a great year was 6,480 long. A dodecahedron is 6,480 degrees. Um, so you have all of these numbers between the platonic solids lining up with uh, how we measure in, at a Neolithic level, so-called space, lining up with an individual year and the great year. When I um, so taking the great year and embedding it in the human experience, Carlson finds, so the great year is 26,000 um, years long. There's the 432 minutes. That's 7.2 hours, 720. So we have the, is that nice one? We're going to do a duet? Duet? All right, doesn't matter. I don't know what the Spanish for duet is. <laughs> um, basically, the great year, so the, the, the giant platonic year of 26,000 embeds into the human experience of time down there at 432 minutes, 26,000. Let's do one more. So there's a harmonic relationship between the human life and place time. Well, what about breath? There are 26,000 breaths per day. So 26,000 years is the full processional year through the zodiac. So we breathe the amount of times in one great platonic year in one day, which is in harmonic relationship to it. We heard about the sanctity of breath earlier. It takes 72 years, which is the average human lifespan, to move one degree. There are 26,000 days, which is the approximate number of breaths in a day in 72 years. So your average lifespan is the same amount of breaths you do in a day, which is the same amount of years in a platonic year. Where do we get the word spirit from? It's Latin right so this like this cannot be <laughs> this cannot be in a heliocentric universe of no meaning of no meaning where you are a little meat monkey on like a ball of dirt uh, at the edge of a kind of boring corner of the cosmos because your a single day of breaths is the great year is your lifespan is everything else right and this credit to randall carlson because obviously he's math king we all kind of know the great pyramid is a scale model of the earth right and if i was to add more to starships and that chapter is already long enough um it would be this bit so we know it's a it's a ratio of um or it's a scale model of the earth but it's specifically uh, a scale model of the earth in uh in relation to the radius of the sun so there's the 432 which we found all through time and then bringing it down to the human scale 432,000 miles is the radius of the sun right um, so th this is geocentrism, and this is an argument for a step back into it, because this is a step back into harmonics and relation. And I had nowhere else to put this, um, but I think it's important, and actually some Martin Armstrong friends in the uh, room will recognize this, 
But the most important events in history occur at 80% sunspot activity or up. It's called like the human excitement model, which is big changes in, in civilizations happen when the sun is elevated in activity. And again, that there should not be a correlation there unless we are in deep and profound harmonic meaning with the stars, right? With the actual night sky and day sky, because it is the sun. All right. So geocentrism gives people a sense of place and meaning. Um, it's a worldview that centers your own meaning and worth, right? So they, when, you're, when you operate in a geocentric world, you feel like you can trust what you see and experience. Because again, we're gaslit into loneliness and estrangement by people saying, no, that's not what you experience. But what they mean is, I have abstracted from human experience using mechanical devices and built a model of reality that doesn't match how humans experience it. And that experiential part is the bedrock of what we might call indigenous frameworks. And so it's not that this is wrong, it's that it is, it comes from the experience of using mechanical devices to learn something about the world. Right? So it's like a song of mechanical devices, but that's still an experience. And rather than using that to immediately invalidate or ruin it, do you want to do a duet? <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah, that's better. <laughs> uh, this is a Zach Bush quote, which I absolutely love as we bring it home. Metabolism is the conversion of sunlight into movement, right? So at the bottom of, you can be vegan, you can be carnivore, sun hits the earth, uh, grows green things, which you then either eat or gets upcycled through protein, which you then eat, right? And then you convert that into movement because that's what metabolism is, right? So let's look at, I'm very interested in, in vagal nerve um, theory and, and processes. So one of the things you can do to improve your vagal tone, and the vagus nerve is obviously one of the longest, if not the longest in the body, connecting the brain to all the major organs. And this one regulates whether you're in uh, a parasympathetic or sympathetic state, right? So the more you're in a parasympathetic state, the more you're healing and so on. So to, to sort of work on your vagal tone, one of the best things you can do is barefoot walk in quote unquote nature. And what that does is forces you to slow down and be aware of the present, right? Now, if you can do that in a beach context with someone you love, then um, that parasympathetic nervous stuff promotes complete healing. And I need to work out how, but when you are, this is something Zach Bush said, but there's like a thing where if you're barefoot on the ground, you're basically Faraday caging yourself. And, and something he said, I don't know, I'm, I'm still working on that one. But what happens if you do this process Think about what this is. This is re-presenting. So you are barefoot on country, underneath the sun, slowly being aware of your surroundings rather than in shoes and rushing. So what's actually happening with this kind of vagal tone exercise is that coming back into relation. It's that re-presenting in and around the circle, right? And you do it with a loved one and it's, it's heart healing because you're releasing nitrous oxide and so on. So it's re-presencing or intemporalizing because you have to slow down. You have to experience the universe in the things around you just so you don't get stuff on like jamming you in the foot, right? Uh, and local girl, as we come to the end, uh, well, local enough, Maria Serpina was Zapotec rather than Maya, but she's closer than I am, right? Cure yourself with the light of the sun and the rays of the moon. Um, put love in tea instead of sugar and take it looking at the stars. Heal yourself with the kisses that the wind gives you and the hugs of the rain. Get strong with bare feet on the ground. There she knew it. And with everything that is born from it. 
And always remember, you are the medicine, right? So this is something that, again, we look at what other people did. And in the corners of the so-called Western world with things like vagal tone theory and all the rest of it, we're starting to see it come back. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm impatient. Maybe I just want to look and say, well, Maria was on it 70 years ago. Uh, maybe we should listen, right? And uh, which brings us to Egypt. I told you we'd get there. The name of the year, this ties it into Hermeticism, which is how we put this stuff back into Western esotericism. The name of the year in Egyptian is Renpet, that which rejuvenates itself. And, uh, and there's a slang term for it, uh, harmony in Egyptian, which is longing for Hermopolis, which is that kind of archetypal, beautiful city of relation. Um, harmony for the Egyptians was defined as the balanced, pleasing state that imparts, well, that's just boy joy, which, uh, I mean, that's a thing, but it's not what I meant, uh, imparts both joy and beauty. Hermopolis is in the gnome of the hare, so the gnomes are the little regions. Everyone in this room knows that. Uh, the animal of intelligent movement who dances beneath the moon and bring tides of luck. So the hieroglyphic wun or hare is translated as the essence of life or being. So just think about the hare and its movement and its energy, and that's what they used for the essence of life. And not just that, they put it inside um, the Ouroboros. So we sometimes see it encircled by the Ouroboros, the serpent that swallows its own tail. The space between the one, which is being, so that's the hair, and the Ouroboros constitutes the world's horizons or the sphere of non-being, where being always has the potential of continually recalling, restoring, and renewing itself. So this is that realm presencing, right, that we got from Heidegger. It's, it's a rediscovery of what we can find at least in Egyptian thought, and, and so consequently, you can make the case, and I do, that modern Hermeticism is a discovery of Egyptian thought. So if it is in Egyptian thought, you can call it Hermetic. Um, all right, man, uh, the human being lies at the very center of the Hermetic worldview. It is believed that the individual human harbors the seeds of all possibility, right? Through this, humankind has the power to shape the universe. So how do we square this with a relational cosmos made up of persons? only some of whom are human, right? So there's a thing that uh, some animists, I guess, don't like about Hermeticism, which is the centrality of man. But that's kind of missing the point. What's actually happening is if you are in a human form, um, this is how you experience the world. And not just that, that you were made up of the cosmos. So even if like the human is the center of hermeticism, it's because it's made of all this stuff. And this from Voices of the First Day is um, this idea that the plant is the dream of sunlight. And that's kind of like what Zach Bush said, where everything that's on earth is made up of sunlight, effectively moving at different speeds, you know? So humans are special, but we're all made of the same stuff as the rest of the universe, which, um, the Egyptians didn't measure time as so much as market. So the Egyptian calendar and these ideas looks very much like what we've just done, a sort of whirlwind trip around the world to look at. Time was experienced. It wasn't tabulated. So when the king gets up, it's not to like mark the time. It's not like he's Big Ben. Um, the action wasn't to measure the arrival of the sunrise, but it was it was to participate in the sunrise. So the sunrise is a thing that happens in the universe and humans are in the universe. And that's why you look at the baboons that are part of the kind of sunrise iconography that will kind of like screech 
when the sun rises and sun sets. That's why they're associated with uh, Thoth and so on, is they're, they are participating in this moment of the return of the sun. So this is how um, the Egyptians experience rather than tabulate time. And that's at the base of our esoteric tradition. It's there. We just need to kind of peel off TikTok time, right? So final remarks. The machine world's theory of time is wrong and deadly. Um, time in a living uh, universe is right and healing. So getting time right heals you. The threefold framework that I mentioned before kind of highlights the shortcomings. I'm not suggesting everyone adopt it, but you can kind of see where uh, the shortcomings are, right? And this is the, a big deal. If we just adopt non-Western temporal frameworks, we're replicating the same error that got us into this mess in the first place, like ever improving implementation of technical systems. Um, but, and the other thing is human resonance is both passive and active. It's something we're made of and it's something we must lean into, right? So we are made of and participating in the sunlight, but we lean into it. We do that presencing, we do that ceremony. Um, and this is key. There is a harmonic relationship between the human heart and the sun, the human breath, the human day, the solar year, the human lifetime, and the platonic year are all in harmonic relation. So if we come back to the message, if we want to boil down of the Maya calendar, that's saying the same thing. Like the 260 is a harmonic framework of arriving on earth in a human body in the first place. And that's embedded in this grand cosmic relational order of living beings. Well, we have that in the way we measure stuff as well, which means they don't need to be put together because they're saying a true thing. That's what it tells us about time. And again, I mean, this is the question that I end the presentation on. What does it tell us about who we are and what we are made of? And that is from a book called The Wind is My Mother by Bearheart. And what we're actually doing is borrowing the sunlight the wind and the food which comes to us from deep under the ground. The roots reach up and feed us out here on the limb. So think of each day as a loan and learn to use it wisely. Thank you. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.